0: Philippians chapter 1, and uh, last week we were working our way through verses uh, 14 and uh, up to verse 18, and uh, we saw a little bit about what was going on in Paul's life, and and as we read this morning, the New Testament has a lot to uh, show about different events in Paul's life, and if you look at his life, it wasn't... uh, all that wonderful. <laughs> um, he had a lot of traumatic things happen to him. You might say it even went badly for the Apostle Paul uh, throughout his ministry time. Acts 9 records Paul's salvation. And by the end of the chapter, uh, people were already plotting to kill the poor guy. Uh, he was forced to leave to save the, flee and save his life. And uh, he was initially rejected by the, by the church at Jerusalem. Jerusalem. In Acts 9, on his first missionary journey, uh, he was contradicted. He was accused publicly, accused of blasphemy. There was mobs that were uh, stirred up against this guy, uh, the Apostle Paul. And uh, uh, In Lystra, he was even stoned and left for dead, but God spared his life. And as we read this morning out of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I can't imagine going through all those things. Um, I mean, just to receive 39 lashes once <laughs> is one thing. But uh, to be beaten with rods and all that, uh, you know, I don't know where our, our faith would be if, if we were put under such scrutiny. And I pray that it would be sustained. I pray that our faith is sincere. But the one thing that kind of really jumps out at me in Paul's life is despite all these trials, all these sorrows, all these accusations, people coming against him, people deserting him in ministry, there was that joy in his heart that God put there. 2nd Timothy tells us that he was forsaken by unfaithful friends. Um, In Philippians chapter 2, just over a couple pages in verse 20, he says, speaking of Timothy, he says, I have no one else of kindred spirit. In other words, you're the only one that's sticking with me through all this. Um, Even many of the churches that Paul poured his time and his energy and started uh, and and really uh, served faithfully for years, uh, they fell into gross sin. Um, They fell into erroneous theology. Uh, he had a kind of a continued sorrow in his heart for the lost condition of his own people. Romans 9 goes through that in detail. Um, many individuals that he discipled or nurtured under his care just kind of turned tail and ran. They defected from the faith. And they left him um, to serve somewhere else. He was in prison five times in Jerusalem, Caesarea Philippi, and twice in Rome. You know, you, you wonder if this guy, when he went to a town, the first thing he did is check out the jail because that's probably where he knew he was going to be staying. Um, you know, he just had a hard life. But he never, ever, once lost his joy. In the midst of all these trials, in the midst of all this pain and anguish that he was not only physical but spiritual, Second 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, he writes this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he had done, whether good or bad. That's not the verse I'm looking for. 6.10. Oh, no, I'm reading out of five. No wonder. Ah, these contacts, I'll tell you. One's for reading and one's for sight, and this is not working out. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You know, I, I pray that that would be our, our heart. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You know, when things happen to us in life, it doesn't mean we should sit there and say, yippee, oh, praise God, you know, I lost my job. Wonderful! This is great, you know. Um, no, it's not talking of that. I mean, there's true sorrow that comes as a result of our circumstances in life. But Paul had the spirit of God, and 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 in, in such a way that he was able to look at those trials that he was facing and say, you know what? This is not going to take away my joy, because God has granted me this joy. Bad circumstances really increase. I think, the joy of those who respond biblically to their circumstances because they lead to a deeper trust in God. Have you ever noticed that in your own life? When do you trust God the most? When you're in the thick of it, right? When things aren't going too good. When you're stranded on a freeway somewhere and you don't have a cell phone and you got four flat tires or you ran out of gas, you're going, God, help. You know, I'm trusting you. Uh, You know, when you find out something about your family that just blows you away. What do you do? You turn to God. When someone dear and close to you passes from this life to the next, you turn to God. And those those bad times really allow the... they kind of balance out the good times and they allow that joy to be really sincerely understood and known. Because they lead to a deeper trust in God, And I think Paul really understood that. He understood what it meant to go through the thick of it. And yet, he still maintained his confidence in the Lord. See, because joy, if you get your joy, if you get your happiness from your circumstances, when those circumstances aren't so happy, <laughs> what happens? Your whole attitude changes. Everything around you changes. You know, but boy, when everything's going good, then oh, praise God. You've know, you got a big smile on your face, a little halo around your head. Everything's great. But as soon as everything falls apart in your life, what are you doing? God, why are you doing this to me? And we get that kind of an attitude. Paul never once did that. He yielded his, his heart completely and totally to the Lord. You know, It's great when our kids bring home a report card and it's A's and B's or whatever, but what, what happens when, it, when it's D's and F's? God, what are you doing, my, my child? What's going on? But we want to have that joy that Paul had that never left, because it was it was derived from a relationship with his Savior, and it's unmixed and it's lasting. And in this section of Philippians, in verses nineteen. 26 we kind of looked over the the last couple verses the last couple weeks that joy that joy did not leave Paul in spite of the troubles that he had and you can kind of read back in verses 12 to 14 he talks about some of the troubles I mean this guy was in prison he understood trouble and in verses 15 to 18 he talks about those who turned away from him and even were trying to plot his demise you might say uh, in the ministry they were jealous of his ministry And so when he was in jail, they were making up all sorts of rumors. Oh, yeah, he's got sin in his life. That's why he's in there. And, you know, look at Paul. You know, yeah, he's supposed to be this great apostle born out of due time. He saw the Lord. Yeah, look at him now. He's in prison. And look at us. We're out here. We're not in prison. We're preaching the gospel. And they were. They were preaching the gospel faithfully. But they were doing it with the wrong motive. They were doing it to malign Paul. This kind of shows you God can use a lot of different ways to touch people's hearts. And Paul wasn't upset that they were the fact that they were preaching a false gospel because they weren't. They were teaching the true gospel. They were preaching the true gospel. But their attitude and their motive was all wrong. And we looked at how important it is to have the right kind of motive, the right attitude when we're involved in any ministry. Why are we doing what we do? What we do? Are we doing it to be seen by men? Are we doing it just because people expect us to do it? Or do we have a passion, the passion that Paul had for ministry and said, you know what, I, I couldn't think of doing anything else. And so the apostle kind of unveils now this this other threat. Not only the troubles and those who left him as detractors, but now all of a sudden there's a whole new window that opens up for us in verses 19 to 21. I just want to read that for us. He says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance in Philippians 1 through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed but with all boldness as always so now also Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. see Paul even remained joyful though his life was being threatened the only the bottom line with Paul was as long as the Lord glorified that's fine You know, do whatever you want with me. As long as God gets the glory, that's what mattered to him. As long as the gospel was advanced, that's what mattered to him. As long as Christ was preached, as long as souls were converted, that's what mattered to him. And the Lord was magnified. And you can see where his joy was not on his circumstances. It was was fixed on the kingdom of God, entirely related to the kingdom of God. You stop and you look around at our churches today and our walks with the Lord, I include myself in that. You know, I don't know if we could really say that we're as committed to Jesus Christ like the Apostle Paul was. I mean, Paul really exemplified for us what Christ was talking about when he said in Luke 9, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him first what deny himself, take up his cross, which was an instrument of death, by the way. You know, it wasn't some little cross you wear around your neck. <laughs> this was an instrument of death, and follow me. That's what our Lord said. And so Paul was so given over to the Lord that he didn't care whether he lived or died, as long as God was was glorified, as long as Christ was preached, as long as the message continued. And you know what? That kind of attitude today is, is hard to find in any church. It's almost unheard of because we live in such a materialistic, self centered, non self sacrificing day, I think. Um, you know, you just got to walk through the grocery store and look at some of the, the, the magazines. You know, 99% of the magazines are, you know, how you can look better, have this, have that, whatever. Um, it's all about I. Me, myself. And, and most people today don't understand what it means to live a self-sacrificing life. And I think that you know we're so blessed in America, we're so blessed in our churches today, that we fail to understand that what if God took everything away? What if you went home this afternoon and your house was burned to the ground and everything you own was gone? Would we still have that joy in the Lord. Would we still be, you know what, I don't understand why this is happening, but praise God and let's, let's. what's next? You know, there's something about when you talk to missionaries, I think God has given them a special gifting to set aside the things of this world. I mean, that's what they do. They They leave their family, their friends, everything, basically, they have here in the States or wherever, and they'll go to some foreign land where sometimes they don't even know the language. And it could be years before they ever even are able to translate the language into a a sentence that would make any sense as far as the gospel goes to these people that they go to reach. I mean, talk about patience in ministry. You think of some of the Old Testament prophets even. God tells them to go here, go go share my message with these people. They're not going to believe you, but go do it anyway. (laughs) It's sacrifice. And it's just that the world today is so much about me, I. We, we fail to understand what it means until it comes to that critical stage in life when you're on the brink of leaving this world and going to the next. All of a sudden, maybe it sinks in. You know what? How did I really spend my time? What was really important to me while I lived? Because it doesn't matter now. I mean, when you're laying in a hospital bed and you don't know whether you're going to see tomorrow, I don't think really that you're wondering about, you know, the new stereo you got in your car or, or the whatever. I mean, you know, I think you're going to be focused on God as a way of prioritizing things. And I think that as, as the people of God, sometimes we have to step back and say, hey, you know what? Are things getting a little out of whack in our lives? And it's we all fall into that. We all do. And there's nothing wrong with having nice things and, and all that. I, I just always say that you know when the nice things have you, then, then we've got problems. But in verses 19 to 21, he kind of points out here five principles, five realities that really gave him the confidence that we see. He was totally, fully confident, even though all these circumstances around him was negative. And he was totally confident, not in himself, as you read those verses, he wasn't saying, Oh, look at me. I'm Paul. I have... Great. I'm the wonder. No, he was. his confidence was that the Lord would, co- would cause triumph. Excuse me. The Lord would cause triumph no matter what. And so the first point there, in verse 19, he says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. His confidence was really in the promise of the Lord. That word there, for I know, doesn't mean... Maybe, maybe it's going to happen. No, it's a Greek word, Oida. It means to know something with certainty, with absolute certainty. And Paul was really convinced, without a shadow of a doubt, that the present suffering and everything that he was going on, it was going on in his life and he was going through, both at the hands of unbelievers and believers. See, that adds a whole different dynamic, doesn't it? You know, we expect to be persecuted and attacked by unbelievers. But what do we do when we're attacked by believers? Unjustly. What kind of attitude do we have then? Sometimes that's hard to swallow. You know, it's one thing to expect attacks to come from the world. But when attacks come from your own church or your own brother or sister in the Lord, that's that's a tough thing to deal with. Well, Paul says, no matter what, it doesn't matter. I know with a certainty. But even though this suffering that I'm going through right now at the hands of both believers and unbelievers, those who are preaching the gospel outside of this prison right now with the wrong motives, trying to make me look bad, trying to make me feel bad, it's not going to work because I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. And he quotes really a section out of Job 13.16. Remember the book of Job? Poor Job. He had, went through all these troubles. And uh, uh, he was outstanding righteous man, And Satan said, well, yeah, no wonder this man is righteous. No wonder he's serving you. Look at, he's got everything. And Satan kind of made an agreement with God that he could go down and afflict Job, take away everything that he had, and see if Job would still serve God. Well, that's exactly what happened. Took everything away. Except his wife. And you remember her advice. Curse God and die. You know, (laughs) I'm sure. You wonder what God was thinking when he left her there. But, you know, poor guy. Well, think about it. His whole family was wiped out. Everything he owned was gone. And there's his dear wife. And she turns to him and says, I'll just curse God and die. You know, I don't know if I need those kind of friends. But Paul knew without a certain a certainty in his heart. He just knew for sure. And, and Job says in 13.16 when he's replying to, to one of the, the guys there that are kind of giving him some advice. Zophar, he says, this also will be my salvation or my deliverance is the word. And, and Job really correctly understood all the, the terrible suffering that he was going through it was not because God was punishing him for sin. Because he looked in his heart and he knew that he was a righteous man. He didn't understand why all this stuff was going on. And so, the same with Paul. When Paul looked at all the situations that he was involved in, and all the persecutions and everything, he fully believed that God one day would deliver him somehow from all this. Both from his physical afflictions, as well as the false accusations, and those who had him imprisoned, all those things. He was going to be delivered one day as a result of God working through all these things. Remember what he said in Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Well, now he applies it to his own life because he's in the midst of all this stuff. And you notice that verse doesn't say that God causes all good things to work together, it says everything. You know, it, it really comes down to a solid belief in the sovereignty of God. And Paul knew his conscience was clear. He went over it and over it. And he knew that he wasn't being divinely chastened. I mean, sometimes as believers, if we're if we're sinning willfully before God, it says that He will discipline us. Well, Paul knew that that wasn't the case because there was no known sin in his life at that time. And he was fully convinced that God would, would allow His present suffering to work together for good. And I just wonder if we have that same... Kind of assurance. That word, deliverance, there is commonly referred to as salvation. It comes from the Greek word that we get the, the English word salvation from. And and some people believe there that he was referring to in verse one his deliverance from the uh, from sin and death through faith in Christ Jesus. That he was confident of eternal security. Others believe that what he's talking of is he was going to be vindicated before Caesar and subsequently left out of prison. He was going to be delivered from his chains and delivered from his execution. I don't think it could have been because of his execution, because in verse 20, he kind of qualifies this whole expectation. Look at what he says. He says, whether uh, by life or death. I don't think that necessarily he had in mind there that he was going to be delivered from his chains and from execution could be, but irregardless, he knew that God was going to deliver him one way or the other. And his salvation would be perfected as he was ushered into God's uh, presence. Now, the thing that we want to kind of focus on here is that Paul knew that his present circumstances in his life were temporary. And if we can just pound that into our head, it doesn't matter what you're going through today. You know, I mean, you could go through it. It could be financial, it could be relationships, it could be job, uh, you know, physical, whatever, spiritual. Whatever you're going through today is temporary. It really is. In light of eternity. And he knew that he would be delivered one way or the other from these circumstances by life or by death, he says. In Job 19, 26, Job declares, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will take His stand on earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Job had the kind of faith, the kind of that joy that presides over any circumstances in our life. And that's the kind of faith that we need to have in the Lord. Paul says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Second thing there, not only confidence in God's promise, but confidence in the prayers of the saints. Because he says, will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer. Through your prayers. Uh, Paul, of all the writers of the New Testament, obviously believed in God's sovereignty. And he had perfect confidence that God's word would be fulfilled and his purpose would be carried out. But he also knew that that God's sovereign plan incorporates the prayers of his people. See, some people struggle with that. Well, if God's sovereign, if God's got everything worked out and God's in power, you know, and we can't change that, why pray? Because somehow, in the spiritual realm, God coincides our prayers with his sovereign will. And he works those two together and he instructs us to pray you know we're not just to sit back on our laurels and grace and say oh well you know God's gonna work everything out who cares Uh, that would be sin because we'd be disobedient to what God has instructed us to do and sometimes God tells us to do certain things and they may not make much sense if you've been coming out on Wednesday nights we've been studying through the book of Joshua and last Wednesday night we realized that you know his military campaign was definitely not put together by Uh, Norman Schwarzkopf or any of those guys you know I mean it was to go out and march around the city and then watch it crumble I mean that didn't make any sense in a military mindset but that's exactly what they did and God prevailed and so sometimes God prescribes certain ways for us to do things and they're not always in our mind the most logical but we need to be obedient and God incorporates prayer within his sovereign will and 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 somehow, he he, he really uh, uses those prayers and those convictions. James 5.16 says, the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplish much. So we need to diligently be praying for those in our body, praying for each other, those in our family. And I think that even, even Paul, in, turn over to 2 Corinthians, Corinthians, chapter 1. 2 Corinthians, chapter 1. In this, Paul's facing these difficult circumstances once again, and he appealed to the church in Corinth to pray for him. Now look at what he says in 2 in, in Corinthians, chapter 1. Look at verse 5. He says, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now look down at verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we were despaired even of life. Verse 9, yes, we have the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust, that He will still deliver us. Look at verse 11. You also, helping together, how? In prayer for us. That thanks may be, giving, be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through so many. Some of you may not even been here, but when I first came to this church in one of the fellowship times after church, I had little prayer cards that I had people fill out and commit to pray for myself and my family as we start this ministry. And some of you filled those cards out. And you may think that those cards are wherever. I keep those cards right in my desk drawer. And I still have them to this day. And I pray that you're still praying <laughs> for me and for my family and for the ministry here at the church. Uh, because you, we all need that. We all need that. We all need to be dependent upon a God who is greater than us. The minute we begin to realize, oh, you know, we got everything under control and, you know, kind of leave God out of the picture. Then you know we tend to go on autopilot, and God has to kind of shake us up a little bit. Um, but just as these folks were delivered from death, and it says because you know yeah God did it, but they were praying for these individuals. Uh, there were some people praying for Renee Blanca this past week as they were down there in the midst of the eye of the storm, or wherever it was down there. I think they got out of there in time, but down in the the uh, Gulf in the uh, Florida area, and you know there's a hurricane coming through there, and and. Uh, you know, we shouldn't take that for granted. That we, we do need to be praying. In, in Romans 15.30, Paul visited the, the church of Rome and he said, Now I urge you, brethren, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. We should never be so proud as to, to, to not be able to ask for the prayers of brothers and sisters in Christ. Even over in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18-19, to 19, Paul writes, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on a lurch. With all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, to make known the boldness of the mystery of the Gospel. I mean, that's a verse that means a lot to me, because every Sunday or whenever I teach, <laughs> You know, that's one thing that's in the forefront of my mouth. God, help me, you know, just articulate correctly your word. Help me not to get in the way. Help me just to do what you want me to do. And it doesn't come naturally to me, as you can probably tell. So God really has, you know, his, his work cut out for him. But, you know, I continually rely on that. First Thessalonians five twenty one twenty five says, brethren, pray for us. He's pleading with them. Second Thessalonians three one, Brethren, pray for us that the Word of God will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it also did with you. When's the last time you prayed a prayer like that? Uh, nothing is more encouraging to those in ministry to know that fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, are diligently praying that God would be glorified, God would work through the ministry of those involved. So he had confidence in the prayer of the saints. He also had confidence there back in, in Philippians Chapter one. Look at verse nineteen. At the end, there he says, "In supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, and the provision, some may say, of the the Spirit of Jesus Christ." He had confidence in the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. So it's the Word of God, the prayers of the saints, and the power of the Holy Spirit. They all work together to benefit those who are are working on God's behalf. Uh, Jesus said in the Gospels, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever, and that this is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not know Him, see Him nor know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Uh, That's a very powerful verse if you stop and you think about it. The, the, The very God, the Holy Spirit resides in the hearts, in the lives of those who put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we forget that. But it seems Paul was speaking here not so much about Christ's provision of the Spirit to believers at salvation, but I think for the divine power and protection after salvation. Um, that provision, that word provision, describes a full, bountiful, and sufficient supply of what is needed, more than enough. And I think that you know we have to stop and realize that the Holy Spirit is our resource for anything we need in our spiritual walk. You know, we don't need to pray to God and get, ask Him to give us more when we have the Holy Spirit. We, we got about as much as we can ever get. You know, um, some churches believe well, you have the haves and the have-nots. You know, you have some people in church that are that have the spirit, and some people don't. Some people have certain gifts, and some people don't. I, I don't go in for that. I think that just divides the body of body of Christ. I think we all have the same Holy Spirit. I think the problem is 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 our willingness to access that power. You know, you can have a million dollars in the bank down the street, but if you're too lazy to go down and put the ATM card in the thing and take the money out, it's not going to do you any good. And sometimes we get so caught up in the, the hustle and bustle of things. That we forget, hey, wait, I've given you a divine enabler, a divine helper to come alongside you and do the work that I have called you to do. Zechariah four six says, Not by might nor by power, but by God's Spirit. John sixteen thirteen, Jesus promised, When He the Spirit of Truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Matthew 10, 19, 20 says, Do not worry about what you are to say. I love this verse too. For it will be given you in the hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now, some people take that. A bit too far. We had a guy in college, my roommates, we were going through a homiletics course to get together and we we're supposed to practice our sermons on each other and stuff, and he quoted this verse. And he said, oh, I'm just trusting the Lord. So well you know, that's well I studied some, but yeah, I'm just trusting the Lord. Well he got up there and he just fell flat on his face. I mean the whole thing just went down the tubes. You know, but he was saying that, oh, you know, I'm not going to worry about what I'm going to say. You know, God will give it to me and I'll just be the greatest preacher there ever was. Well, you know, there's also diligent work that needs to go into that. We all know that. Um, You know, even the most gifted musicians practice because they know that they have to. But the Spirit helps believers to pray. It says in Romans 8.26, when we are weak and we don't know how to pray as we should, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. And he's not talking here about the gift of tongues because he says for with groanings too deep for words. With groanings that cannot even be uttered. And so the Spirit is the source of power in the believer's life. And then we all know Acts 1, 1, eight you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Jesus promised. And you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. And see, we're able to take the gospel to people and share the gospel with them, not because of who we are, but because of the power of the message and the power that resides within us as believers is that of God. It's the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Ephesians 3.20, the Apostle Paul writes of the Lord, he says, The Lord is able to do far more abundantly, listen to this, beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. In other words, what he's saying there, go ahead and ask. Don't think God's going to run out of whatever you're asking for. That's impossible, he's saying. Because he's able to do far more abundantly. Uh, it, It means an overabundance. And he's beyond your wildest dreams and he says beyond all we would ask or even think in other words we can't even comprehend how much God wants to bless us and I'm not talking just materialistically I'm talking spiritually in every way he wants to bless us but it's according to the power of the spirit that works within us pulses and even in Philippians 419 my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus in glory. Galatians 5.22 uh, the, the Spirit produces in the believers' lives an abundant harvest of, harvest of spiritual fruit. You have love, you have joy, you have peace, you have patience, you have kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All those things are a gift of fruit of your life in by the Holy Spirit. I hear people say sometimes, you know, just pray that I'd have more love. Pray that I'd have peace. Pray that I'd have patience. Pray that I'd... Well, okay, that's fine to pray that those things would increase, but we have to understand, see, part of the Christian battle, part of part of, of, of really getting a grip on this, this whole spiritual warfare we're involved in is to understand who you are in Jesus Christ. If you understand who you are in Jesus Christ, then a lot of things fall into place. You understand that you have all the patience that you're ever going to have, you just have to use it. You have, to have to trust to God to use it in your life. You have kindness, you have goodness, you have faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all those things. But we have to trust God that He would use those things in our life through the power of the Spirit. It's not by the flesh, the Bible says. Some Christians, I think, tend to want to just hunker down and say, "Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this thing work this time," and and they get all. You know convicted or whatever and they try to you know read through the bible in a night and memorize you know the whole bible they do all this stuff and they take off these great big chunks and they're they're trying to accomplish so much but they're all they're doing it in their flesh and they burn and crash every time you know and then you you feel all discouraged and you feel like oh i'm not even worthy to go to god now you know i broke my devotion time again do you really think that that god is up there you know when when you miss a time in your devotion that he's up there wringing his hands how dare you miss I, I don't think that that really plays into god's day i think he's got a lot more going on and he's not up there ready to smack us over the head every time we do something that that you know is our own expectation god wants us to basically be in his presence and that's an everyday thing you know whether you're having devotions i mean don't get me wrong we should those are good things but don't allow the enemy to turn those things around and use them as a guilt a club of guilt to beat you down spiritually and that's what happens a lot of times. You know, you, you, you tend to want to fulfill what the church tells you to do. Well, you know, I mean, we, we encourage people to, to come to church on Sundays because it's the right thing to do. We encourage you to come out on Wednesdays. Why? It's not about filling up a room with a bunch of people. It's about growing and understanding more about God and his character and his word. And as you understand those things, all of a sudden you begin to understand your position in Christ a little better. So when you're out there in the world and the enemy throws something at you, you can stop and say, Hey, wait a minute. That's not true. I don't need to listen to that. You know, God says He's going to supply all my needs. And and you trust in the Lord. You don't trust in your own ability, you don't trust in the ability of others. You've got to get you through that. And so we 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 trust in the provision his his confidence came from the provision of the Holy Spirit. Clearly, verse twenty, he says, "According to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but with that with all things boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body." You know, his his confidence was based on the fact that you know what God gave him a promise of heaven. It's it's almost kind of the idea here is that Paul's earnest expectation is hope that we're grounded in the Lord's promise, not in his wishful thinking, not that maybe one day you know, hope I make it. That word earnest expectation it's a compound word in the original language, and it literally refers to stretching the neck. Uh, have you ever been? Around A little child and maybe they're trying to look up on the table and they can't quite see up over what's up there. In our daughter's home, our grandkids, she's getting a little too big for this now, but Mason has these little toy trains and he'll go out and play with them in the living room and then when Sophia, his sister, wakes up, she comes down and rips everything apart and wreaks havoc okay, with Mason's train tracks and everything. So they worked out this deal. When when Sophia's up and wandering around, Mason, you have to put the the toys on the table, the kitchen table, so Sophia can't get at them and you know wreck them or whatever. And so, you know, I remember being up there and he's putting them on the table, and and here's little Sophia trying to look, and she can barely see over the table, you know, but she stretches her neck, kind of. Where is that thing? You know, I want to get it, and uh, it's kind of cute. But that's the idea here is that you know it's almost like you're 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 stretching your neck to to, to catch a glimpse of what's coming ahead looking in the future kind of has the idea of an eager longing or an expectancy and it's really reinforced by that word hope and Paul was certain in the eyes of God he would never truly be put to shame that's what he says he says according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed That included Caesar, that included the world, that even included the church. Ultimately, what he's saying is, you know what? He's going to be vindicated. Matthew ten, thirty two, Christ's promise basically says, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. He doesn't say, Well, maybe if I am having a good day, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. He doesn't say that. He says, everyone, whoever shall confess Christ before men. You say the same thing that God says about Christ. That He is the Lord. That He is the Son of God. That He did come to earth. That He did die on a cross for the sins of the world. That He was raised on the third day. And that He is the Savior. And you're in need of Him. When you confess that, God says, I will also confess Him before my Father who is in heaven. He expressed a similar confidence to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10.8. Even if I boast, he says, somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. Paul wasn't afraid of being put to shame. In the book of Acts, he says, The God of our fathers has appointed you, Paul, to know his will and to see the righteous one and to bear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for Him to all men of what you have seen and heard. That was a promise that was laid out there for the Apostle Paul. And even in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul says, Always be exalted in my body, knowing that the believer's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Romans 12.1, he referred to himself as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which was his spiritual service of worship. 2 Corinthians 4.10, he said he carried about his own body, the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus would be manifested in his body. And even though Paul was going through tremendous, difficult situations, Paul wanted to be an instrument used by God. In Galatians 1.24 He was testifying, and basically because of his faithfulness, that throughout Judea, they were glorifying God because of me, he says. See, the Old Testament affirms over and over and over, those who are righteous will never be put to shame. But the unrighteous, they will. That word, put to shame, means to be disappointed, to be disillusioned, to be disgraced. For us to be disgraced as believers, Christ would have to be disgraced. For God to disown His own children, He would have to disown His own Son. Because we are one. We are in Christ. Isaiah 49.23 says, Those who hope in Me will not be disappointed. So He had confidence in that promise of heaven. And he also had confidence in the plan of God. Look at what he says in verse 21, and 20 and 21. He says, Whether by life or by death for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He wasn't certain of what God's plan was for him. He didn't know whether he would continue to serve and exalt him through his life and ministry or whether he would leave this world and, and the final exaltation of, of Christ in his life would be death. But he said, either way, as long as the Lord's will is done, it's fine with me. I'm willing to sign off on it, God. Whatever you want to do. In Acts 20, 24, he says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And in Acts twenty one thirteen. You remember he was going to be arrested, and he says, "What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not ready to be bound, but even to die. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ." Romans fourteen seven to nine. He reminded the believers in Rome. Not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, you know what? We're the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So Paul wasn't so much concerned about his life physically here on earth. He he was... His passion was fully, wholeheartedly committed to the advancement of the Gospel and the exaltation of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This kind of sets things in perspective, doesn't it? When you know the Lord and you you, you realize, you know what? I could die tomorrow. Any one of us could. Praise God. I'd be in His presence, right? Well, if God keeps me here couple more years, praise God. See, that's, that's the kind of attitude we need to have. Sometimes we end up wringing our hands. And and I don't know about you, but that's the kind of comfort that I, I get you know, when, when I'm able to visit people in the hospital that are on that brink of death and they do know the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, sometimes I don't know whether to pray for their healing or, or pray for their ultimate deliverance into his hands hard to see people suffer physically and in pain and realizing, well, even if they do recover, what's their life going to be like? We don't know. God can heal. But He doesn't always heal. Sometimes it's just their time to go home. And we need, to, we need to be able to release that and be okay with that. As hard as it is sometimes. And it is hard. Whenever you stare death in the face, it's a, it's a it's a hard experience to go through. But look at the end. Paul says there, for me to live is Christ and to die is grain, gain. You know, the Greek phrase here, there's no verb there. It literally reads, to live Christ, to die gain. <laughs> I pray that that would be our attitude toward life that if we're gonna live here let's live for Christ let's do what Christ wants us to do let's not do what we want to do let's yield our hearts over to him and if we die let's be assured that you know what if we're in Christ we'll be in his presence just like that I don't know where you're at this morning maybe you're sitting here this morning and saying well I don't have that kind of insurance I don't know if I where I'd go if I died this morning but you can know you can know just as sure as you're sitting here this morning That God would would welcome you into his presence. If you know the Savior, that's the key. If you've come to Christ, if you've repented of your sins, and you realize that, you know what, I can't do this on my own. I need a Savior. There's only one out there, folks. (laughs) His name is Jesus Christ. And he loves you so much that he went to a cross and he died in your place. That's the message of hope, that's the message of grace. That's the message of forgiveness that God wants us to share with a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Lord, we pray that somehow You would communicate to us the, the confidence that Paul had. Lord, as much as he went through, as hard as his life was, as hard as his ministry was, I'm sure today... People in in church ministry would look at his, his track record and say, what a failure. Churches that he started fell into erroneous teaching, fell away from the truth. People that he discipled deserted him. But God, you knew his heart. And you knew that he was doing it for you. And Lord, that's all that matters. And I pray this morning that whoever's here in this room this morning, Lord, you know the needs that they have. You know the burdens that they carried into this place. And Lord, nobody's here by accident this morning. And Father, I pray that the message that we heard from Your Word would build our confidence, would help us to hold on to that joy that You've given us because we're in Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would just hold on to that, that promise. doesn't matter what comes against us as the church, that You will build Your church Even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Father, we thank You for that promise. And Lord, I pray this morning, if there's anybody here who doesn't know You in a personal way, who's never yet trusted You as their Lord and Savior, Father, there's no formula to follow. There's just a willing heart, a bended knee before a holy God, recognizing Your own sinfulness and crying out to God to save You, to forgive You of Your sins, make you that that new person that He promises that He wants you to be. I pray if there's anybody here this morning that they would make that personal commitment to you. And Lord, we just pray that we would have a good week, that we would take this message of hope and forgiveness to a lost and dying world. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, Amen.